So this morning we're going to be in Genesis 24. We've been doing a series through a section in Genesis covering the, the Abraham narrative, the story of Abraham, God's calling him, and then Abraham now passing off the baton of the promise to his son Isaac. So we're going to conclude that kind of miniature series through Genesis this morning in Genesis 24. Genesis 24 is the second longest chapter in all of the Old Testament. Psalm 119 is the longest. You really can't beat that one. But this is the second longest. So we're going to do the the flyover scenic route of Genesis 24. And I'm going to read for you uh, the middle section. So if you would look down to Genesis 24, verse 33. So I'm going to read from verse 33 down to verse 49. And just by way of context, Abraham has taken one of his servants and he's given him a very specific mission. And the servant is now sitting down because he really wants to complete that mission. So starting in verse 33, then food was set before him, Abraham's servant, to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And so they said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had, sp- I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. As far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Our Heavenly Father, we ask once again this morning that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Lord, help us to see and understand more clearly the grace and the glory and the marvel of your unfolding plan of redemption. And in seeing, we may understand and in understanding, help us to be transformed and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know a good storyteller because they know how to use tension and cliffhangers to leave you in such suspense 
that you have to read just one more chapter or you have to watch just one more episode. Recently, our family was reading through the delightful book called Because of Winn-Dixie. It's about Florida, wonderful story. And as each chapter concluded, the author, Kate DiCamillo, left just enough tension, just enough of an unanswered question in the plot that my kids erupted in united protest. Give us one more chapter, just one more. We want to know what happens next. That's a good storyteller. Well, sprinkled throughout the Bible, throughout God's unfolding plan of redemption, are some major cliffhangers, some major moments of tension that demand resolution. And having just finished Genesis 23 last week, we are dangling off the edge of a cliffhanger. And yet, from our vantage point, uh, it feels more like we're dangling off the edge of a hill in Florida, which is to say that our feet are nearly touching the ground because we know how the story goes. We, we know what happens next. We know there's a Genesis 25, 26, and 27. But when reading the Bible, especially as it's unfolding in its story, try to put your mind in the shoes of the audience who it's written to and the characters who are seeing it unfold in real time. For example, try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He has just buried his wife, Sarah, the mother of the son of promise, Isaac. And she was the mother to whom the promise of an offspring as numerous as the sands on the seashore was given along with Abraham. And now, as we leave Genesis 23, there's no mother in Israel to carry on this promise of God's. What we have at the end of Genesis 23 is Abraham the widower and Isaac the bachelor. So in other words, Abraham has his successor in his son Isaac, and yet Sarah, who has just been buried, has no successor yet to carry on the promise. So you could think of God's unfolding plan of redemption as a series of relay races. So Abraham and Sarah, they're the first leg of that relay race in God's plan. They've run pretty well. Okay, there, There's some swerves and stumbles and, and misfortunes along the way. And yet here they are coming to the end of their leg of the race with the baton in hand, and now they have to hand off that baton to Isaac. But in order to hand off that baton smoothly, Sarah needs a successor. And yet if they don't find one, it's like dropping that baton and then they've ended up running in vain. So the question that Genesis 23 leaves us with, that 24 is going to answer, is this. How is the promise of God going to be passed on to the next generation? How is that baton handoff going to go? Or you could ask the question in a more optimistic, God-centered way. How is God, given this tension that needs to be resolved, how is God going to demonstrate his steadfast love and faithfulness to his promises by making sure that this promise gets handed on from one generation to the next? Because if we've learned anything In studying Genesis, we've learned this. God is one who fulfills his promises. It is impossible for God to not fulfill his promises. God cannot not keep his word. You can add as many negatives as you want to it to emphasize it. So we should ask the question, not hesitantly, but expectantly, how is God going to show his steadfast love and faithfulness? And we also know that we we can't see how he's going to do it always, but we know that he's going to do it. So how? How is he going to do it? Well, first, he's going to do it 
by overseeing Abraham's dying wish in verses 1 through 9. So Abraham here at the beginning of this section in verses 1 through 9, he's technically not on his deathbed. It's technically not his dying wish. But the reason I call it that is these are the last recorded words of Abraham to us in the Bible. This is the last thing we hear Abraham voice in the scriptures. And if you jump ahead to chapter 25, verse 8, the section that concludes after that is Abraham breathing his last breath in his old age and being buried in the cave with his wife. So before Abraham breathes his last breath, here is his final wish and instructions in verses 2 through 4 in Genesis 24. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, so the most senior servant, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord. So this putting hand under the thigh is some form of kind of swearing an oath, making a promise. Kind of strange, right? You're glad we shake hands these days. <laughs> he says, I make you swear by the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. They don't worship the same God we worship, so can't be from here. But you will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So he he lays down this mission. You know, this mission, should you choose to accept it, is to find a wife for my son. If you were to give this a military operation name, it is Operation Wife Fetcher. That's what this servant is tasked with. He has to go to Abraham's homeland and find a woman who will come back and be a wife for Isaac. And so what this mission is setting up is that the servant is going to retrace all of Abraham's steps, all 500 miles of them. He's going to travel north, reversing the route that Abraham traveled, which takes probably 20 to 21 days by foot or with camel, so that he can find a woman who is either crazy or courageous enough to make that journey back to marry a complete stranger in a strange land and live in trust and dependence on the Lord that he's going to keep his promises. So you could almost say that this is beginning to set up for us the calling of Abraham version 2.0. But instead of Sarah's barrenness being the issue that demands a divine solution, it's Isaac's singleness that demands a divine solution. And so with that task before him, it's no wonder that the servant raises this objection in verse 5. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. That's kind of an understatement. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So if I go there and no one comes back with me, should I come back and get your son and bring him there? Because it's more likely that if your son's there and they see him, maybe they'll want to marry him. Well, Abraham is clear in verse 6. Do not take my son from this place. You need to go there and you need to bring him back. This is the land of promise. Abraham knows there was a time when he left the land of promise and it didn't go so well for him. So he's saying, no, you must bring her back here. And then in verse 7, Abraham declares with all confidence this statement. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. This is not Abraham demanding. This is Abraham stating with confidence what he is expecting God to do for his servant. Abraham, the one who used to forget the Lord, 
now remembers all that the Lord has done for him. Abraham, who is formerly hesitant and fearful and worrisome, speaks about the Lord with such confidence and conviction to his servant. Abraham, once so full of doubt, looking for reassurances everywhere, is now filled and brimming over with certainty and confidence in the Lord. Do you notice the, the verbs he uses in verse 7? He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. Which offers a good question to us. Have we come to know the character of the Lord so well, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, in such a way that when we speak about the Lord, we speak using verbs of certainty and confidence? Have you come to know the Lord, not just intellectually, where you could recite a definition of his steadfast love and faithfulness, but experientially, where when you speak about the Lord, you use verbs of certitude? Or are your thoughts about the Lord filled with question marks rather than exclamation points? Will he be faithful? Is he going to show up? Or is it he is faithful? He will show up. Now, I'm not talking about unwisely presuming on the Lord as if he were just a government handout program. Nor am I talking about name it to the Lord and claim it from the Lord as if he were the ultimate genie in the sky who's just willing to grant all your wishes, like in Aladdin. I'm not talking about that at all. I am talking about being able to look back like Abraham just did in verse 7 and say, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, which in turn allows you to look towards the future and say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies will never come to an end. Therefore, I will hope in him. Perhaps dying wish is a gross mischaracterization of what Abraham is giving to his servant here. It would be more accurate to call it the last great expectation of the Lord from Abraham. Yes, he's giving him a mission. Yes, he has a wish, but he has great confidence, great expectation in the Lord that he will do it. What this teaches us is that it should be the desire of every Christian to press on to know the Lord in such a way that in the face of obstacles, anxiety, worry, hardship, whatever the future may hold, you can speak of the Lord's faithfulness with verbs of certitude and sentences that demand exclamation points at the end of them instead of question marks. As we continue on in this story, we see that God is going to ensure that the promise passes on by answering the servant's very specific prayer. This section is going to cover verses 10 to 28. Again, we're going to fly over and drop in on a couple spots rather than look at everything. So the wish and mission has been given. Operation Wife Fetcher is a go. And the servant travels 500 miles north. So that's the equivalent of finding a camel somewhere, getting on I-95 Indian Town Road here in Jupiter, and going all the way to Charleston, South Carolina. That's, how, that's the journey that this servant makes. So he's arrived now. He made it there. Now the question becomes, how am I going to find a woman who's willing to come back with me to marry a complete stranger? There's, there's no e-harmony compatibility test that he can hand out. He can't make a profile for Isaac on you know, yoked together in Yahweh single site or something like that. So here's his strategy. Verses 12 to 14. Look there with me. And he said, the servant said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, 
Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, Lord, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I might drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the servant prays to the Lord. He commits his task to the Lord. And in his prayer, he gives the Lord some pretty specific criteria by which he can show that this is the woman who's to come back and marry Isaac. Now, why this criteria? Is, is it a random, arbitrary prayer that he gives? And also, in praying this prayer, is the servant in danger of putting God to the test and making improper demands of the Lord? I don't think so at all, either of those questions. Instead, the servant's prayer wonderfully demonstrates what real, genuine, God-honoring prayer looks like when we have mission, a task for the Lord. Real, genuine prayer starts by flowing from a heart of childlike dependence on the Lord. Think about it. Children are asking for help all the time. I think that's all they do probably all day because they know that they need help. They know that there's things that they cannot do and so they're looking for help. They're, they're making requests all the time. Proud people rarely, if ever, ask for help because they're living under the fundamental conviction that they can do it themselves. They don't need anybody or anyone else to help them. This servant demonstrates that childlike dependence before the Lord. It says, Lord, I, I need you. I need you to help me. So I commit this to you. And also, real, genuine prayer flows from a conviction that God is absolutely in charge. Real, genuine prayer is convinced that the invisible hand of God's providence upholds and orchestrates all things. Even the most random things, like who gives water to a camel at a well outside the city of Nahor? That's one of the convictions that fuels prayer. And I'm sure many of you have wrestled with the question, if God is absolutely sovereign, why pray? How, how do we resolve the tension of asking God for things, knowing that he's in charge and has ordained all things? How, how do we resolve that tension? I'm not necessarily going to resolve that for you today. But consider the alternative. If God isn't sovereign, why would you pray? If the hand of providence was ultimately at the mercy of man and his whim and his will, what would be the point of prayer? If, if such were the case, if God's hand of providence were at the whim and will of man, this is what the servant's prayer would have sounded like. Servant, O Lord, please grant me success today. Here's the Lord interrupting him. Let me pause your prayer right there, servant. Grant is a bit too strong of, the word, of a word for you to use in this prayer. So I, I suggest using words like, Lord, please wish me success. Or Lord, please partner with me in pursuing success. But honestly, servant, being at the mercy of the will of the people I created, I'm not really in the business of granting success. But I wish you all the best in Operation Y-Fetcher. It's a fictional account, okay? You see, at the end of the day, we will not be able to resolve all the intellectual tension, the, the, the Charlie horse between the ears of, if God is sovereign, why pray? But we have to understand, at the end of the day, 
It is only a solid conviction that God is in charge that really gives prayer any meaning, any motivation, any fuel at all. As John Newton so poetically put it, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. That's what fuels prayer. Well, in addition to that, real, genuine prayer boldly asks God for things that are in line with his will. So not just childlike dependence, not just a conviction that God's in charge, but real, genuine prayer boldly asks the Lord for things that are in line with his will. Real, genuine prayer is filled with the crest for things that God cares about and values, as demonstrated in his word, rather than just a shopping list of things we value and care about. So the specific request of the servant in verse 14, when I say, you know, please give me a drink of water, let her be the one who says, not only you drink, but let me water your camels also. This is not a prayer that God writes Isaac's wife's name on the sky or that he, you know, put out a fleece and that if it's, you know, wet on this side and wet on that side, then he'll know that this is the woman. That's not the nature of this prayer. Rather, it's a request that God provide Isaac with a wife of godly character. Think about this. For someone to come to the watering hole, to give a drink to a complete stranger, and then offer to water 10 thirsty camels that have just traveled 500 miles over 20 days, that would demonstrate a massive work ethic and even greater character and generosity. Our world says that the three most important qualities in another person are physical beauty, physical beauty, physical beauty. Now, as Christians, we don't deny beauty. We, we honor beauty, but we do not deify it or worship it because the Bible says this in Proverbs. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain or beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, to translate it into modern language, Beauty is a depreciating asset. To insult you, you're all getting uglier, okay? That's what it says. Even I used to be good looking, you know? So the Bible says the three most important qualities to look for in another person, godliness, godliness, godliness. Character, character, character. That is the biblical appreciating asset. You will never, you'll never have a bad return on that investment. And so... The quality that the servant prays for is godliness. And that's exactly the quality that Rebecca demonstrates. So in verses 15 to 20, Rebecca's actions play out exactly as the servant has prayed for. And I don't think the servant was expecting that God would just mimic the prayer and the actions. I think he was asking for someone with godly character. And he is shocked that the Lord actually answered the prayer exactly according to what he had prayed. Because in verse 21, it says, he sat there in silence, staring at Rebecca, wondering if this was the one that the Lord had provided. He's just shocked at what he's seen in her character and what he's seen in the Lord's providence. And then in verses 22 to 25, Rebecca's resume of godliness is even better than the servant expected, that the Lord did far more than he could ask or imagine because she's not only generous, she's hospitable and welcoming. She said, we have a place for you to stay, for your camel to stay, come to my house. And so, the section began with the servant making a request to God, and then the section ends with the servant offering praise to God that he has granted his request in exactly the way he asked and better. 
And so as John Newton said in our application, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. That's the king we pray to. Well, next, as we move along in the story, we see that God is going to ensure the preservation of his promise by blessing the servant's urgent request. So we're coming to the longest section now. We're going to cover verses 29 to 61. It's very lengthy, so we're going to fly over again. And at this point, the servant has the utmost confidence that Rebekah is the one. Okay, he's found the one that the Lord has provided for Isaac, but there's still one problem. He has to ask her dad and her brother. So he hasn't asked yet. He's convinced, but he's got to convince them. So in verses 29 to 32, he's brought into the house of Rebekah's father and her brother Laban, who we'll meet later. He's going to be a little bit of a nuisance in the Bible. But at this point, they're good to him, probably because he's very wealthy. He gave all this gold and nice things to her. So they offer him a place to stay and they offer him food to eat. But when the food is set before the servant, he's so filled with a zeal and an anxiousness to ask the question that he he won't even eat. He says, I can't eat until I've told you why I'm here. And then from verses 34 to 48, what we read in our scripture reading at the beginning, the servant retells every single detail that we just walked over the last 25 minutes. Literally, it's a almost a word for word, point for point rehashing of everything that we just saw in verses one to 28, which begs the question, why re-record every detail we just went over and we know just happened? Why not save paper and ink, which were very expensive in this time, and just say, and the servant recounted everything that the Lord did. That would save us a lot of time. My scripture reading would be a little bit shorter. You get to go home and eat sooner. But that's like asking, why not just watch a really good movie once? I mean, do you really need to watch The Princess Bride a second time? Should you watch The Count of Monte Cristo a third and fourth time, some of my favorite movies? Isn't it a waste of time to read a really good book again? Should you read The Hobbit a second time? Should you read Pride and Prejudice again? Should you read Pilgrim's Progress a tenth time? Or, this is very important, is a second bowl of Bluebell ice cream really proper and fitting at bedtime? The answer to all the above questions is absolutely yes. Life affords us some things which are so rewarding, so good that you have to go back for seconds and thirds. It would be improper not to, right? Well, the wonder-working providence of God who proves his steadfast love, who demonstrates undeniably his faithfulness in the most marvelous ways is worth repeating over and over and over again. In my own life, I love to recount how the Lord introduced Ash and I to each other. I mean, I literally walked into my parents' kitchen and there was a complete stranger. And after, I was probably crying the week before to my mom of you know, my singleness or something like that. And I I found a wife who was desperate enough to marry me. This was great. The Lord is good in his providence. He works wonders. And this is the testimony of the psalmist. Great are the works of the Lord, studied, recounted, meditated on by all who delight in him. Or Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Christians, should be like people at a buffet 
who are eager to get their money's worth out of that buffet. So they go back for seconds, they go back for thirds, they just sit with their mouth under the ice cream dispenser, recounting over and over the works of the Lord, feeding our mind with the knowledge of his providence, the knowledge of his faithfulness to us, so that we taste and see that it is good over and over again. And we doubly need this, not just because it's good to recount them, but because we are so prone to forget. Psalm 103, which we just sang in our service, starts with, forget not all his benefits, implying that we forget. Not only is beauty a depreciating asset, but our mental capacity is a depreciating asset. We forget. We need to remember. So I think this detailed repetition of the Lord's providence is Moses' subtle way of teaching us to recount the steadfast love of the Lord so we don't forget, so that we keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Well, when the servant is done, he's, he's recounted the work of the Lord. Here he, he pops the question to her father and her brother in verse 49. Look there with me, verse 49. He says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, kind of, he's kind of putting the squeeze on them a little bit, tell me, and if not tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And to the servant's great delight, they respond in this way, in verse 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So they see the invisible hand of providence working in and through all of this that has just gone on. And remember that our story of looking at Abraham's life started with the word go. Go from your land and your country, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Go, Abraham. And now here as we kind of come and wrap this up to a conclusion, it almost ends with that same word. Take her and go. The, the promise is being passed on with that same word being signaled there. And then if you jump down to verse 58, the question is put to Rebecca. Well, what does she think? And she models the same obedient faith and responds to the call of God the same way Abraham did all those years ago. And she says, I will go. So the command is given, go. And she responds, obedience, I will go. So the Lord has blessed the servant's request. And now he begins the long journey back home. And yet this time he's, he's not alone. He has Isaac's future wife with him. And Abraham's confidence in the Lord has not been put to shame. Well, finally, we see that God has indeed preserved his promise by providing Isaac with a godly wife. So the story that we're looking at has these beautiful literary bookends, these beautiful kind of sandwiched between two literary sections that have tension on the one hand and resolution on the other. So on the one end of this story, you have Abraham's grief over losing his wife, Sarah, which creates this tension that there is no mother in Israel. There's no wife for Isaac. But now we come to the other end And you have Isaac's joy versus Abraham's grief in receiving his wife, Rebekah. And now there is a new wife in Israel to carry on the promises of God. And verse 63 and 64 recounts the moment that Isaac and Rebekah's eyes first meet. Don't ever let anyone say the Bible is in a romantic book. Look at verse 63 and 64. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. 
and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. What struck me as I read the conclusion of this section is that the words that Moses uses to describe Isaac seeing his wife for the first time is almost the same exact words that are used in Genesis 22:13 when the Lord provides a lamb instead of Isaac. It says, Abraham, in Genesis 22:13, lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, a ram was caught in the thicket. And what I think is meant to draw this connection that just as the Lord miraculously provided a lamb to sustain the son of promise, the Lord has now provided a wife to sustain the future of the promise. The Lord is providing, demonstrating his faithfulness and steadfast love over and over again. And Abraham, who said the Lord will provide to Isaac and said the Lord will provide to his servant, shows once again that he is right to trust in the Lord. And so in this instance, we have the Lord providing a wife to preserve the future of the promise. And then the story concludes in verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So the baton has been passed on. Abraham and Sarah have successfully handed the baton of the promise off now to Isaac and Rebekah, who are going to carry it for their leg of the promise journey. And I'm not going to preach too much on Genesis 25, but all that to show that the way that the story of Abraham ends is with him now being able to, as it were, die in peace because he has seen the Lord pass off the promise to the next generation. And so we read this in Genesis 25, 9 and 10. His sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. So Abraham comes to the end of his life, and he sees his son be united to a new bride. So he says, I can breathe my last, and now I can go and join my bride, as it were, and go to heaven to be with her. And thus ends the Abraham narrative. Well, in Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, a great book for kids and adults, she has this beautifully simple tagline throughout the book. It says, every story whispers his name. Every story echoes the story above all stories. She's talking about the fact that every section of the Old Testament, every story of the Old Testament, in some way points us to Jesus, helps us anticipate and prepare for Jesus. And in Genesis 24, Jesus' name is whispered to us as we are told to anticipate the time when one would come and make an even greater journey to secure a bride for himself forever. Jesus is the one who comes, like the servant, to find for himself a bride. And he makes an even greater journey to do that. And he secures a bride who is, in many ways, unlike Rebecca. And it's the Gospel of John that brings us out most clearly. So I'm going to try to survey this and make this connection for you. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding in Galilee. Jesus comes to a wedding. And at a wedding, the bridegroom was responsible for bringing the wine to the wedding. Okay. Well, guess what happens at this wedding? They run out of it very early in the wedding. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? He turns the water into wine. And he turns the water not just into any wine. This is not Aldi wine. This is total wine, wine. Okay, this is, this is or I don't even know, or Napa Valley, I guess, is probably John's looking. He's like, you got to know better wine. Anyway, 
Jesus turns the water into wine, and it's good wine. And yes, this makes the fundamentalists very angry, and they're wondering, why did he do this? But he does it for a specific reason. Jesus is the true bridegroom who has come to provide the better wine because he has come to bring about an even greater marriage, being wed to his bride forever. Well then, in John chapter 3, you have John the Baptist there, and John the Baptist starts that chapter by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the chapter ends this way. This is what John says in John chapter 3, verses 29 to 30. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. What John is saying is, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the attendant, the, the best man of the wedding, who's just here to witness it and watch it. When the bridegroom comes, my role is done. Behold the bridegroom who has come for his bride. Jesus is here to win for himself a bride. Well, now the question comes, what kind of bride has the bridegroom Jesus come for? What, what kind of bride has he come to redeem and save? Well, in John chapter 4, we read this. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Does that sound a little bit like Genesis 24? Going on a journey, sitting beside a well, and then it was about the sixth hour, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Does that sound like Genesis 24? So like the servant in Genesis 24, Jesus is weary from traveling and he sits beside a well of water. And like the servant in Genesis 24, Jesus asks the first woman who approaches him for a drink of water. But unlike Rebecca, whose character, her godliness was kind of promoted by Genesis 24, the opposite, of this, the opposite is, this, is the case with this woman. This woman does not check any of the proper boxes for a potential bride. Rebecca was from the right place. She came from the right lineage. She had good stock. She's from the right family. This woman is a Samaritan. Jews don't like Samaritans. They're a half-breed. They're compromisers of the faith. Jews look down on them. and they don't, they don't even interact with them, which is why when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, the woman is shocked that Jesus is talking to her. She says this to Jesus. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. So Rebecca's the right character. She's pure, she's generous, she's hospitable. The Samaritan woman is known by her disreputable character. Because Jesus later has a discussion with her. He said, why don't you go bring, call your husband? And she said, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not even your husband. So she's been with six men, five failed marriages, and then she's clearly, com- currently, in adultery. But the seventh man she meets is Jesus. Seven, the number of perfection, meeting this Jesus at a well who asked her for a drink, but he isn't really looking for a drink. He's offering the water of life to this woman. So here is Jesus pursuing an impure and unholy woman with his pure and holy love. That is the gospel. That is the picture of the gospel that Genesis 24 is pointing us to. That Jesus is coming to pursue a bride, but it's not the bride we would expect it. The perfect, spotless, pure Son of God has come to secure 
a bride marked by rebellion, impurity, unrighteousness, disreputation. And instead of that, deterring Jesus' love, her sin only seems to draw out his love all that much more because eventually he will lay down his life for this bride. He will lay down his life for this bride so that his blood will cleanse her of her sin, so that his faithfulness will cover all her unfaithfulness, so that his righteousness would clothe all of her unrighteousness, and that his love would give her new life and a new start and a new record. And if you are in Christ, this love and purchase by Christ for this bride describes what he has done for you as well. And if you are not in Christ, then this is the gospel that is offered to you right now. This is a proposal that is made to you by the Savior. From heaven he came and sought you to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought you, and for your life he died. Let's pray.